On this Good Friday, I want to uh, talk about the symbols of our faith for a moment. Uh, since the first century, there have been symbols used for the Christian faith. And some of those these you'll be quite familiar with, and others may not so much. How about the fish? You've seen that fish as a, a sign for the Christian faith, on perhaps on somebody's bumper. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Uh, here's one, uh, an anchor. An anchor was a symbol for our faith. It was uh, showing something of the hopefulness that we have as Christians. There's the dove, of course, representing the Holy Spirit. There's the good shepherd. Uh, and here's an interesting one, the peacock. The peacock, they found paintings of peacocks in Christian places, and it was to speak of something about eternal life. Uh, I find uh, it strange, though, that the most enduring, lasting symbol of our faith is nothing other than the cross. And it's appropriate for us to speak about that today. I, I suppose if you were thinking about uh, doing something for a business or a commercial venture, you'd be looking to do a logo. Well, for the Christian faith, the logo seems to be the cross. Uh, if you were going to brand our faith, it would be this image, that the symbol that would appear over and over again on the cross. Uh, we see crosses displayed everywhere on buildings, on, on uh, uh, statues, uh, with every different kind of medium. We see it in, uh, even in uh, jewelry, uh, beautiful gold crosses, sometimes with gems encrusted in them. And uh, you don't have to be a follower of Christ to wear a, uh, a cross. We can see all kinds of people, uh, even uh, celebrities, who wear crosses. It's quite fashionable. But when you realize what the cross stood for, you might think twice before adopting that as your logo or as your symbol for your faith. You see, the cross was a cruel instrument of capital torture and it was so terrible that uh, for the Romans, a Roman citizen couldn't be put to death except on the basis of highest treason. The Emperor Cicero declared about crucifixion that it was the summum supplicium, that is, the most extreme form of punishment. Josephus, the first century historian, uh, made this comment about it. He said it was the most wretched of deaths. Well, there are many other preferable ways to be executed, for sure. But the purpose in crucifixion was not just to execute someone, but it was to make a point. It was to have a form of punishment that was so awful and so severe that it would serve as a deterrent, a warning to others that if you behave this way, this will happen to you also. That's why crucifixions were publicly done. Uh, in places where people would travel, in, in roads, busy roads or intersections. Romans wanted to, people to see how frightening and how terrifying and how wretched this was. So it would serve for them as a warning. And especially they would have their most notorious criminals. The worst of sinners would be hung on a cross. Well, it's interesting the Romans didn't uh, invent crucifixion, 
but I have to say they really perfected it for what they wanted. So from the witness of historical writings and documents and from the Bible as we look at Jesus' life, that uh, I want us to look and understand something about what the cross was for Jesus Christ and how that all came about. When a criminal was convicted, when uh, a capital offense was uh, committed, uh, and they were sentenced to death by crucifixion, they usually began this whole process by a flogging. The criminal would have to be and endure this experience that would be absolutely torturous. What would happen was they would strip that individual down, uh, they would stretch their back over a rack and tie them there with their back all taut. Then they would take a whip, uh, a cat of nine tails if you will, something that had leather thongs with pieces of metal and glass embedded in it. Uh, they would stretch that person over and they would uh, flog him over and over again, whipping him, uh, sometimes so bad, just flaying the, the flesh on the person's back, even sometimes uh, showing, uh, showing uh, uh, the, the person ex or organs exposed. And Roman soldiers could be of the most cruel and vicious type of person going, and they took great delight in inflicting this kind of pain. Well, that was just a softener up for what would come later. Jesus, we understand, underwent that kind of treatment and torture, and he did so without fighting or, or making a noise. Well, they would be charged then with the, the uh, criminal would carry the cross beam of the cross to the place of the crucifixion, if they could stand that. For Jesus, he was stumbling under the weight of this cross beam and uh, stumbling and falling to his uh, knees. They seconded uh, Simon of Cyrene, to, was conscripted to carry the cross for Jesus. When you got to the place of crucifixion, the person would be laid out on the cross. In the case of Jesus, uh, he would have had his hands and his feet nailed to the cross but they needed something a little more sturdy as well. So often they would tie the shoulders back to the cross so the people wouldn't slip off. They also put a little seat on it uh, to keep them in place as well. Uh, as they would nail him and uh, to keep him in position, the cross would be lifted up then and rested in place. Part of the person of crucifixion, uh, the purpose of crucifixion, was to make this as shameful and as demeaning as possible. Typically, uh, the, uh, the criminals would be uh, crucified naked. Now, in Jesus' day, you would have an undergarment and an overcoat that you would wear. And what we find is Jesus at the site of the crucifixion uh, was uh, the, uh, the centurions, the soldiers, uh, would, would divide up his outer coat. They would tear it in pieces, cut it in pieces. But when they came to the inner garment, they found that it was seamless. And so they decided to cast lots to see who would get it. They didn't want to destroy that garment. But that would leave Jesus hanging on the cross, probably naked, in shame and in pain, and uh, 
and the, uh, the object of derision and scorn and mocking, the crowd would come in that prominent place. And it was terrible for the person on the cross. We know that the night before it was so cold that the disciples and people were standing around a fire to keep warm. Here is Jesus on the cross, naked, presumably, and, and without uh, shelter from cold or heat. And uh, besides that, you wouldn't have necessarily control of your body, bodily functions. So it could be that uh, you may be in your own feces or urine. A terribly humiliating, terrible thing uh, that would be not only embarrassing and shameful, but also painful to the nth degree. And th the thing was, the idea was that they wanted to make that as long, uh, pr prolong it as long as they could. That's why the little seat was there, so that they could push up and gain a, a little bit of uh, air in their lungs and then they would sl slink down again and, and go up so that many of them who died, died of asphyxiation, they finally stopped and uh, couldn't get any more breath. That's why on the, the crucifixion with Jesus and the two criminals uh, crucified with him, uh, that they, as they uh, crucified him, they, they wanted to get these guys off the cross because it was the Passover and they didn't want this, uh, uh, this affair being a part of keeping them from Passover or, or being terrible at Passover. And so what they did, they were instructed to, to break the legs of the criminals. Presumably now they can't get air and so that they would die much quicker. We remember that when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So the centurion thrust a spear into his side. Now, Though this was painful and humiliating, the Jews were well aware of uh, crucifixion and what was involved in it. In fact, in 4 BC, that would be about the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman general Vargas uh, crucified 2,000 Jews. So this is something that they were aware of. Now, uh, you can understand why I said it's a strange choice as a, as a symbol for our faith. It seems to me though that what, what we have done with the cross is we've somewhat romanticized it. Uh, cross with jewelry and, and, uh, and we've sanitized it and tamed it. We've stripped it of its stigma and we've divested it of its horror. And uh, it was unspeakably terrible. You can understand why Jesus would pray to the Father in John chapter 12, Save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. In the Gospel of John, over and over, my hour has not come. The time has not come. Over and over. And now the time has come. And as Jesus tries to grasp and wrap his mind around the this uh, torture that he'll be going through and this agony. He's saying, Father, if there's any way, take it from me. Nevertheless, no, thy will be done and not mine. And so Jesus makes this confounding statement after that that challenges and offends our sensibilities. In John chapter 13 and verse 31, after Judas had left uh, to go and do his dastardly deed, Jesus says this, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, 
and will glorify him at once. Did you get the import of this stunning statement? What he's saying is this shameful, ignominious death that he will endure is glorious. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. It's glorious. The cross is glory. That's crazy. Are you kidding me? This terrible, terrible form of punishment uh, inflicted upon human beings and inflicted upon Jesus, something that was glorious. It's the most inglorious thing, unimaginable thing that we could, uh, that we could com contemplate. The paradox of this, the ugliness of the cross, and at the same time, finding out that, that Jesus uh, said this was a glorious thing. Well, what is glory? What is it to be glorious? It, it's something that's radiant. It's something that has splendor. It's something majestic and lofty and supremely worthy. It has dignity and beauty. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't reconcile the cross with glory as we understand what glory means. And how do we apply that uh, to the image that we see from the foot of the cross? Glory, that ugly, horrendous, gory scene. Glory, how do we speak of it as glory? How can we drink in this unspeakable atrocity that was thrust upon Jesus and consider it as glory? You see, one of the amazing features uh, about the crucifixion, and not, not just crucifixion as it was here, but what people were subjected to. Uh, this wasn't unusual for them to see a crucifixion. That wasn't the unusual thing. The unusual thing that, that occurred was that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God was crucified. This is God as a human being crucified by His own people. This is the Creator who is crucified. This is the sustainer of everything in the universe. This is the one who is the ruler of the whole universe. He's innocent. He's sinless. He did nothing but good. He himself said that he could have summoned 12, 12 legion of angels uh, and, and 72,000 angels. He said, I could have called them. I could have eradicated everyone. But he didn't. He allowed that to do, to them to do that to him. What pathos. What humility. What love. Now, the Apostle Paul would make a statement that would be in keeping with this. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, he says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says this, when my, my greatest joy, my boast, my pride, Everything I have, my, my, my praise, everything is to Jesus crucified, He who was crucified. How can He do that? How can He say, I glory in this gory, ugly, terrible cross? Well, I think there are just a few reasons why, this, uh, why He can do that and why this happens. The first is this, because of our relationship with God being reconciled. Our relationship with God 
being reconciled. You see, because of our sins, because of our failures, uh, because of our transgressions and our rebellion against God, it separated us from Him. There, there's, there is nothing we have that we can make our way to Him. We are not accepted by Him. That relationship is broken. The prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so He will not hear you. <laughs> the Apostle Paul would say, All have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. And from there, there was this separation from us and God. We have no relationship with Him. We have no access to Him. We have no right to Him because that relationship is broken. And if it's to be fixed, it can't be fixed on our part. Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 say this, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. That's in Jesus. God was pleased for the totality of His divinity to be in Jesus. Jesus was God as well. And he says, uh, And through Him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in the heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. He said, because of what Jesus did in shedding His blood on the cross, it brought for us, who, who are His children, a reconciliation so that He would reconcile us through Jesus uh, to Him. Uh, 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah spoke these words in Isaiah 53. He said this, We considered Him punished by God, stricken and afflicted by Him. That was our assessment when we looked at Jesus, when we saw Him being crucified. Our normal inclination was to say, He must have been a really bad person. God has poured out His wrath on this person and He's afflicted Him and stricken Him. But He says, no, that was not the case. We were wrong in that. He says this, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us Peace, it was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Did you get that? He brought peace through the death that he died on the cross. And, and uh, he has healed us. He's healed that relationship so that we now, through Christ, have access to God. And, and no longer is there that distance. Well, secondly, it's God's mean of saving us also. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Did you get that? The, the message of the cross, the whole, all of what Jesus did, is considered by people, by and large, to be foolish. It's nonsense. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. God brought salvation through what Jesus did. You and I have not only were cut off from God because of our sin also, but because of our sin, uh, we had to come under God's wrath and His judgment. We, we had to come because of our rebellion uh, under God's justice, and He had to deal with our sin, our rebellion, 
our hatred of Him, our, our failure to submit ourselves to Him. Our sins incurred His judgment so that we must die for our sins. But what Jesus did for us was He took our punishment upon Himself. He took our guilt and our sins were put on Him. And listen to what Colossians 2 from verse 13 to 15 says. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and have disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public display or spectacle of it, triumphing over them by the cross. He says this, Jesus took all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our, all of our transgressions, all of our rebellion, and it was nailed to the cross. Everyone, everything that you have ever done, every, every way that you've offended and hurt God and, and, and violated His will and what He wanted for you, everything that you've done have been taken and nailed to the cross. That Jesus Himself has taken your punishment, your guilt, your sin, so that you could be freed by Him. The debt we owe for our sin has been paid in full by Jesus. It's been nailed to the cross and it will never ever be brought against us. Well, the cross of Christ is beautiful in that it's the most extravagant expression of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. What is love? What is love? John probes this in 1 John 4. He says, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love that God has for us. I want to take you to the foot of the cross. I want you to stand there at the foot of the cross and look up into the face of the one who loved you so much. God Almighty the Son on the cross uh, looking down upon you with eyes of love through the pain and, and, and the blood His blood-stained face. And He reaches out to you in that love. And He says, I am paying the penalty for your sin and I invite you to come to me to find forgiveness, to find acceptance and uh, to put your faith and trust in me. <laughs> Beautiful thing in Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy set before him. What joy did he have? What joy was it that Jesus had? It was the joy looking ahead to be able to know that he was able to save me and you and everyone who would turn in faith to him. He says, For the joy set before him. Um, uh, being loved, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He put up with that terrible, terrible thing and all the shame involved with that. He put it so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. Sadly, so many have rejected him. They found the message of the cross to be deeply offensive. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 1 that, that the Jews found it a stumbling block. Uh, they demanded signs. And, and Jesus had given all kinds of signs uh, uh, to them, but that didn't seem to work for them. They couldn't stomach the, uh, the thought or the idea 
of their Messiah dying as a criminal on a cross. That didn't fit their model. They didn't want anything to do with him. And the Gentiles were, uh, who pursued wisdom and academic endeavors and human intelligence, uh, for them it was, it was foolishness. It's interesting, that word foolishness in the Greek language is the word we get moron from. You, you guys are a bunch of morons if you believe that, if you believe that God was dying in a way to pay the penalty for sinners. Stumbling block. But really, the cross presents a stumbling block for all of us, doesn't it? Now, the cross establishes that we are helplessly, hopelessly lost before God, and there's nothing we can do to be righteous, to change our status or our fate. That's a tough truth for people, people who are good living, people who are doing the best they can, uh, people who are trying to be righteous people. Maybe they follow Christianity or maybe some other religion, uh, that, but they're, they just want to do the best they can. That's a tough truth. To admit that some no good reprobate who's been a terrible person all of their life could turn in faith to Jesus Christ and find uh, forgiveness and salvation after they had all their life perhaps tried to live a good and, and, and uh, righteous life. You see, we can't make it on our own. And that's why the cross of Jesus Christ is so important. And to admit that God could take these terrible, terrible people and save them when we're working all of our life to try and please God is deeply offensive. But it's the only way. We can't do it without Him. Only when we put our trust and our faith in what He has done. That can be a hard pill to swallow. But when you understand that our only hope is in Jesus, the cross of Calvary, and we put our faith and our confidence in Him, turning from our sin, acknowledging that we're sinners, He brings salvation to our life. And that's why I glory in the cross. That's why I rejoice in the cross. That's why my prayer and my boast is in the cross and the one who hung on that cross for me. It's interesting that Billy Graham in 1955 was invited to speak for a week of meetings at Cambridge University in England. For this young preacher, this was an intimidating kind of uh, endeavor for him. Uh, here were all the the dons and the, the uh, deans of the university, all of the intelligentsia here to hear this young uh, upstart preacher from America, this backwater kind of guy. And they sat and listened. Uh, Billy Graham admitted to being somewhat intimidated by this crowd, and so he thought he needed to impress them uh, with some of his uh, knowledge, and so he began to quote Sartre and Nietzsche and Russell and these different people. And the first four nights did not go that well for him. And, and uh, the uh, critiques in the paper weren't that good either. Come the fifth night, he decided that he was going to take an entirely different pathway. And, and so what he did was he said he preached a whole message on the blood, the blood from Genesis to Revelation. And... Uh, this uh, was, would not be the kind of thing that would 
would resonate well with this crowd. Many of them, though they were very scholarly, didn't believe in that kind of thing, didn't believe in, in the need for an, an atonement to save people. And, and, and so he, he spoke this message, and the Holy Spirit did something amazing, moving on that uh, assembly of people. And 400 students turned their faith, it turned to faith in Christ that night. It was an incredible thing that only God could do, but it brought us right back to the cross. The cross is the central issue. And uh, we, we worship a, a crucified and risen Savior. And to some, it's absolute foolishness. And to others who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the Apostle Paul said, when I went into Corinth and, and when I confronted the intelligent people in academia, he, he said this. He said, I, I determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. That was his message. That was his focus. And that's what God used. And that's the message that continues today. And that's why I can say on a day like today, when I understand the horror of the cross, I can say I will glory in the cross because it's a beautiful thing to me. And God has provided salvation for us through that. He's brought us and reconciled us to himself. He's cleansed us. He, he continues to... to uh, to work in our life and transform our life, and He'll take us to be with Him in all of eternity. And so I say with the Apostle Paul, I will glory in the cross of Christ. And if you have not trusted in Him, if you've not gloried in the cross, if it seemed like something nonsense to you, I, I invite you to investigate and open your heart and life to this Christ who loves you, who reaches out to you and offers you uh, a salvation through himself. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would help us to understand the importance of this day that we celebrate the death of Christ and that ugly cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for that one who hung on there. And I pray, Father, that we might be able to glory in that cross of Jesus Christ, because you are worthy. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite Lloyd Knight to come and share musically with us at this time.